Hi everyone and welcome to the fastest pit stop in podcast land. It's Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. We've got a bit of a treat for you this week and I say that because I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised by what you're about to hear. My guest is Fred Vasseur, the boss of the Alfa Romeo Formula One team. And Fred can sometimes have a slightly austere facade. He's the straight guy in the FIA press conferences. He's the one with the poker face who you wouldn't want to sit across the table from in a negotiation. Yet if you speak to Fred in the relaxed environment of the Alpha Motorhome on the Saturday evening of a race weekend, long after most people have left the track, he relaxes and becomes a wonderful storyteller. His passion for the sport shines bright. And while Alpha are having a tough time of it at the moment, you sense a resilience in him that will stop at nothing until he's pulled his team out of the mire. For those of you who weren't aware of Fred prior to him becoming a Formula One team boss, there's something you need to know. He ran a brilliant racing team in the junior formulas called ART, and more than half of the current Formula One grid raced for him at some point. He knows the likes of Lewis Hamilton, Charles Leclerc, Sebastian Vettel, Valtteri Bottas and Nico Hülkenberg perhaps better than anyone else in Formula One. He knew these superstars when they were nobodies, back when they were starting out. He was the person who moulded their raw talent into something that would catapult them into becoming household names, and he speaks brilliantly about them in this podcast. So grab a cuppa, sit back, and enjoy hearing from one of the sport's true racers. Fred talks candidly, and he surprised me with his infectious laugh. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Fred, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Um, we're speaking at Silverstone at Silverstone 2, the 70th anniversary race. Are you enjoying your time in England? Have you ever done two weekends on the bounce at Silverstone? Oh, no, I flew back between the two events in Zurich because we have a lot of to do. But <laughs> uh, no, yeah, that uh, Silverstone is a great place. And uh, I think it's a bit of shame to not have the fans in Silverstone. It's uh, even more obvious than somewhere else in the world that uh, when uh, fans are missing and uh, it's a shame but it is like it is and uh, we have to race this is the most important and we will uh, try to do a good show on track tomorrow Fred I've got to be honest I was watching qualifying earlier today not me yeah <laughs> and I was thinking come on guys come on Antonio come on Kimmy it was a difficult session but it kind of I suppose reflects where you're at at the yeah, moment yeah no we have to be uh clear that the situation is difficult and more than this that we are at the back and uh, sometimes it's going a bit better sometimes not and today was a tough day the big issue for us so far is the quality pace that we are really struggling in, in quality that and then we have a good recovery in, in uh, on sunday very often that we are able to match the the, the guys around us on the grid and uh, to be even faster that we score two points that uh, uh, the the first round and um, but uh, the issue is that when you have to start from the back it's quite difficult to overtake and uh, you have to take risk on the strategy and so and uh, we have to do a step forward on on Saturday but uh, this is the big issue so far. Drivers eliminated: Fiat, Magnussen, Latifi, Giovinazzi, and Raikkonen. It's still too slow. Um, no, we can be one place, two place here or there, but makes no no difference to us you know it's we're still too slow and simple as that 
Why are you struggling on Saturdays? Why is the pace not there? I see the question behind the question and uh, it's not all about the engine. That um, uh, For sure that we did a step back on the classification and roughly the same as, uh, as Ferrari and uh, sometimes the same as us also that uh, they did a good job today but uh, we did all the same step back. From my point of view, and perhaps that uh, the others could have a different point of view, but it's not all about the engine. That uh, and it would be a huge mistake to think that it's all about the engine. That we have to to chase the last uh, hundreds. The, the when you are last and when you are first on the grid, and uh, you need to have the same approach. And if we are not able to do it, that it will be uh, even worse in the future. That uh, we have to stay focused on this, on the performance and. Uh, the engine is not in my hands, not in the hands of the team, and uh, we have to stay focused on the other area of the performance, and we have plenty to do. Can you see a route back to competitiveness in the next 18 months, or are you now waiting for no, 2022? No, no, uh, yeah, that uh, we have to stay positive as a team, that it's, it's true that when if, if you say that, okay, that we have a deficit of performance of, uh, let's say, one second or something like this compared to where we were last year, is that you will never find a magic bullet of one second. That I don't want to speak about the engine, it's uh, not in my hands, but again, but uh, uh, even on, the, on the, the, the rest of the lack of performance that we have to chase it by uh, hundreds by hundreds, not alpha tens or not uh, alpha second by alpha second, because it will never happen. That it means that everybody has to keep the same approach as two years ago or as last year when we were fighting for P6 in Quali and uh, we were chasing hundreds after hundreds and we have to stay in the same approach. Do you see it as having four months to find performance with this car? Because when we get to 2021, everything in Hinville has to focus on 2022. Is, th is that your judgment? Uh, it's, it's true that at one stage of 2021, we will have to switch to 2022 that uh, it will be uh, probably an early stage. By the way, we have uh, four, perhaps five months to, to be focused on the uh, on the next year project, but it's a lot also in one end, and it's uh, it's a lot and not a lot, but uh, it's a lot of session into the wind tunnel and a lot of session after the debrief, after the quali, and so to try to improve uh, step by step on every single area of the car, that it's... Uh, if you have a look on what's happened on the grid in the, the last 10 years, that some teams uh, were really struggling one year and they had a good recovery uh, six months after that we have, to, we have to do the same in the next few months. Let's talk drivers. Antonio, doing a great job in quali in particular. What is he? He's 4-1 up on Kimi now. Yeah, he's doing a good job. It was... A little bit already like this last year in uh, in Q1 that Antonio was often faster than Kimi, but then Kimi was able to build up the pace. The issue is that we <laughs> we don't have the opportunity to go in Q2, <laughs> and it's too late to to build up the pace. No, uh, no, I think Antonio is doing a good job today, and uh, at least in Quali now, perhaps that he has to get more experience for the race. But uh, it's a good step. I think that compared to the the beginning of last year, that he was trying a little bit to put everything together on one lap. That he had a 
we could see from the pit wall that uh, he was fast in this corner, on this corner, or part of this lap. Or, and now I think he's much more able to put everything together. That um, he did a good step forward. And is he learning from Kimi? Is that something he's learned? Yeah, it's always good to have someone with experience. Sometimes it could be um, difficult to manage because he has to be to trust himself in his uh, comments and his opinion, and not to stick to Kimi. He's doing the job, and uh, I had a discussion before the interview with him to say, okay, that now you have to be a bit more sharp and uh, don't be shy with your comments and your opinion because that your opinion is the is your opinion, and I trust you. And uh, almost be more of a leader. I don't need to have a leader, but he's improving also on this part, on the understanding of the car and so And uh, for sure, that it's, uh, the car is more difficult to understand when you are at the back than when you are at the front. <laughs> it's a good exercise for Antonio. I know perfectly that it's not easy to collaborate in this situation when you are struggling, but it's also in this situation that you are learning probably more that and uh, that uh, I have a good relationship with Antonio and uh, we have a mutual trust and I think that uh, it's the best way to sort it out. Were you surprised that he got overlooked by Ferrari when they were looking for a replacement for Vettel? I was not aware that they were looking for someone. (laughs) (laughs) Well that's an interesting point because I think there's a perception that you guys are really close to Ferrari. You got the link with Alfa Romeo. I'm interested to hear that you you didn't know because I was not aware of the of their deal with Sebastian and where they were with Sebastian. That but, uh, but I'm really open if they want to discuss about Antonio. <laughs> now, what about Kimi? Year two. He always said when he came here at the start of last year, he was just going to see if he was enjoying it. How important is he? To your future plans? I don't want to say that that uh, driver the driver is a key point of the performance and the life of the team and the perception of the team from outside. It's not just a matter of lap time, for sure. It's at one stage on the Saturday at uh, at two, it's uh, the crucial moment and the crucial point. But it's not only this, it's also a matter of motivation, of technical leadership, of the, the image of the team and so And I think that uh, Kimi is a key part of the team and he has to be a key part of the team. If Kimi wanted to continue, do you think there would be a, a place in the team? We agreed to discuss a little bit later into the, the season. And for sure with the new calendar, it's a bit uh, different, but we will discuss, we will find time to discuss about this a bit later. And uh, for me, the motivation is the most important. I knew perfectly when we had the first discussion uh, was uh, two years ago now, yeah. Yeah, roughly, a bit less, that the key point will be the motivation because that coming from top teams fighting for championship during uh, 19 years or something like this, it's not always easy to go, not say back, but to go in a a team with different objective, with different approach, with different size, with, uh, uh, and that they they have to be ready to do the step. And uh, we had a very long discussion about this. And he was very open to say, okay, no, it's a challenge. The challenge is different. But my motivation is based on challenge. It's not based on uh, P3, P4, P5. That uh, now we are facing tough time because I think last year that we had uh, not enough consistent from my point of view, but we had good results that we were able to be in front uh, 
of the midfield in, uh, in four or five events over the season. Uh, Okenheim, that we are in a good shape, uh, Budapest, Sao Paulo, and uh, Baku, and uh, uh, Bahrain, that on a couple of events we are in front of the midfield and um, too much up and down, but was okay. This season is a new challenge that... Uh, <laughs> Kimmy likes the challenge. <laughs> Look, Fred, looking at the bigger picture then, can Alfa Romeo become a top team? Have you got what you need in Hinville to challenge the top three, particularly as we go forward with the new regulations? We have to, to take it as a challenge and to do it step by step. And sometimes we are doing a step back due to the circumstances. And uh, But we need to have a, a mid-term project. That uh, I don't think that the new regulation will allow small teams to match the big ones on a short-term view, because that we are not speaking just about regulation, we are speaking about technology, uh, we are speaking about infrastructure, we are speaking about uh, manpower, we are speaking about... And this, it's uh, always a mid-term project, that uh, when you want to work with someone, it's a three-year project, or at least uh, to transfer the techno on track. That It means that we need to keep it in mind and to say that... Uh, to agree on the fact that they are a step forward in terms of technology and uh, we won't compensate this gap in six months because that we have a new Concord agreement on the table and this is a, just a joke. But then the most important for me is the stability of the regulation. It means that if we are closing the gap in terms of budget, but, uh, I hope so, that if we are closing the gap in terms of budget and we have a stability in terms of regulation, then perhaps that we will be closer and closer and perhaps that in three or four years we will close the gap. But we don't have to expect that it will be the case in 22, that it would be a joke. What about being based in Switzerland? I mean, you know, we're, we're chatting at Silverstone. You've got seven of the 10 teams based within an hour of where you and I are sat now. How tough is it being in Switzerland from a supplier's point of view, from a staff point of view? Isn't there a limit to the number of hours, 45 hours a week people are allowed to work in Switzerland? Doesn't sound very Formula One when you compare it to, to what you're up against here. We have um, positive points and some more difficult. Uh, for sure, it's more difficult to attract people because if they have to, to move from McLaren or Renault to to Switzerland, they have to move with the family. It's a new school and new house. And so when you have to move from uh, between Renault and, uh, and Red Bull, they can keep the children at the same school. And uh, and this is done. Huh? That, um, the approach is a bit different. But as soon as they are in Switzerland, I think it's a very nice country. And when you are there, it's difficult to move back. That it's the positive sign. It's true that for the suppliers, for the, the manpower, when you are trying to recruit someone, you have a high density of uh, high profile guy around Silverstone. That it's true. And, uh, and I was at Silverstone before and uh, you can go in uh, any pub of the region and you will find guys working in F1. It's not always the case in Inville. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the abattoir on the other side of the, uh, of the, of the road. <laughs> so that's a difficult side. But in terms of um, infrastructure at Hinville, you've got that wonderful wind tunnel. So from that, from a from a hardware point of view, do you feel you've got what no, you need? The, the hardware is a strong one that uh, for sure the company 
had a huge lack of investment during uh, five or ten years before the new area and that uh, we had to compensate it and it was a big, big, big efforts uh, to do. But I think now we are roughly there. But again, that this this is pro- the perception of this is probably a bit difficult that it's not you can turn and turn the things in six months and uh, and each time that you have to do something it's a long-term project and then you are introducing a, a new technology and you have to be used to work with this and it's taking time and when you are you when you are and, uh, and, uh, ready to do it it will impact the car of the year after and that uh, and the process is always very very long and uh, uh, from an external point of view, I think it's difficult to understand, but uh, we made the b- big step forward, even if the results today are not uh, there. But uh, I think we made good step forward in the last couple of months or, or years, and uh, it will pay off at one stage. Job number one, when you got there, maybe not job number one, but it was high up on the list, was to get rid of the Honda engine deal that your predecessor, Monisha Kaltenborn, had, had signed. Why was it so clear cut for you back then that that wasn't the right route? For two main reasons. The first one, it was quite obvious that we were not able to produce the gearbox and uh, we were dependent of uh, McLaren at this stage. McLaren was not in a good relationship with Honda, at least. (laughs) And it was a tricky point for me to have to deal with McLaren for the gearbox. And when they, they, we knew at this stage that they won't stay with, with Honda, it was the first point. The second point is that it was three years ago, perhaps Honda was not in a good shape in terms of reliability, in terms of performance. And they, they, they did a huge step forward over the last three years. But at this stage, it was more difficult. And Sauber was also in a tough situation. It means that to be the only team powered by Honda on the grid, when you are last, you know that the engine is not the best one. It's a very tricky situation because that it's much better to have a, the same engine as some other team. You can do the comparison. You can fix target to the team. You can try to have a, a decent target to achieve and to say, okay, guys, have a look on what they are doing with the same engine as us. If you start with a, a different approach on the engine side, that you will always keep in mind that where is the level of the engine that uh, into the field. And this, this was also for me a crucial point. Do you think you can win in Formula One with a customer engine? I remember Christian Horner, the boss of Red Bull, saying that the reason he wanted to go with Honda, and I think it was actually an original reason for McLaren going with Honda back in 2015, is the belief that you have to do your own thing to beat someone like Mercedes. Um, If you have a look, that Red Bull was world champion with the Renault engine. At this stage, Renault was not there, but... Uh, Red Bull was a customer that, uh, and they were world champion. Now, if, if the question is to know if you can beat the engine manufacturer when he's, when he's also on the grid, it's another question. Depends on the approach of the, of the engine supplier. <laughs> <laughs> what do they vary? So your deal with Ferrari might be different if you had a deal with Mercedes, might be different if it was Renault. No, but I, I think that it makes sense also for Renault, Ferrari, Mercedes to have customers and to have uh, strong customers because that in, in somehow it's also good data for them, good comparison. And it's uh, the, when the collaboration is going well, that it uh, could be also an advantage for them. Fred, if we can wind the clock back a little bit further to Renault. You were there for 
a year. And everybody, and certainly I for one, thought that you were the perfect fit for Renault. It didn't work out. How do you reflect on that year there? And can you tell us, now you've had time to reflect, why you think it didn't work? I had a tough year at Renault, but uh, now we are, I have uh, time to think about it. But, uh, I spoke about it a couple of times with Cyril because that we are friends again, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it's a shame, but it was probably also a lack of... Uh, organization that if you have a look on the on what's happened that uh, Renault took over the, the team very very late and it was the mid of December that we and that, that perhaps that the, the setup was a bit late also that and uh, with Cyril that we had um, not a clear cut on the responsibility and it's a shame because I have a huge respect for Cyril and uh, I have a good relationship with them that um, I have my part of the responsibility and I had the discussion with Cyril. I think he's convinced also that he's his own part of the responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that you're now the boss of Alpha and you're doing a great job. You've told me already the, the changes you've made and we're going to hopefully see those bear fruit down the road. But do you see Renault as a missed opportunity? No, but I, I'm, I'm really I'm really open and honest on this, that uh, you can't say that it's not a missed opportunity, that uh, I joined with the team, the project was clear, and we had to stop after 12 months. It's it's not a success, okay? That it's clear, and I think that we have to be very clear in the analysis of what we are doing. It's probably the most difficult in our business, and huh? that uh, uh, now we have just to be open enough to understand the reasons of this, and... Uh, I have my view on this and uh, I will keep it for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, can we talk? Is it true, yeah. Fred, that you stayed with Toto Wolf during that year? You and Toto shared a house in Oxford. Uh, yes, on, at some stages, yes. <laughs> that's an amazing thing. Have no, you, that's... You've uh, known Toto for a long time. Yeah, I know Toto for a long time and I'm a good friend of Cyril. We are traveling together and... Uh, I think that we have to be clever enough to consider that we can fight on track, we can be competitors, we can, but in the other end, we have also to to work together. We are spending uh, 150 days a year together and for the benefit of everything, for the benefits of everyone and, and, and the, of the system that we have, we need, and I think it's probably the issue today in the F1, we need to have a good relationship all together. And it's not a dream, but I think it would be much more efficient for the system if we were able to have a, a dinner together sometimes so or that uh, we don't need to be best friends and we don't need to kiss all together every single day, but at least to have an open discussion and, uh, and let's say at least friendly relationship. Fred, that's never happened. <laughs> Yeah, but you know that I'm not sure because the first 10 years of my professional life, I was in F3, I was fighting with Signature and Philippe Sino was one of my best friends on track. And then I spent the next 10 years to do GP2, F2 and so, and uh, the experience, I had a very good relationship with Jean-Paul Drio. And now I'm in F1 and uh, I think I have a good relationship with Toto, I have a good relationship with the majority of the guys on the grid. And for me, it's absolutely not an issue and I will push my teams, my guys to do the best and to perform. 
my focus is on, is on my team. I don't want to fight with the others that uh, we have to deliver, we have to improve, and uh, I'm more focused on the, the performance, and I have room to do it today. <laughs> but uh, that this is the main motivation but I think it's not the right approach to be always in the world war and that this is not and on the top of this it's not a good image for the system when you start the season after Melbourne and you go to the first race you are starting the Friday morning by uh, appeal, protest uh, and so and then after the quali you have the same story and then after the race you have the same story it's, it's absolutely not a lack of motivation or fighting spirit or something like this huh? it's uh, absolutely the opposite can i ask you a bit more about toto when did you first meet him can you remember yeah it was uh, 2001 or 2002 yeah 2002 perhaps he was taking care of uh, bruno spengler and i was running a team in f3 and he wanted to be the let's say the manager of bruno and Bruno was looking for uh, after a seat in F3 and we met like this. And, um, and then when you shared this house in Oxford, what did no, you do? we did didn't you, share the hours. That, uh, did you kick back, drink the beer, watch the football, <laughs> leave the pizza boxes on the floor? How did it work? <laughs> no, I, I was alone and sometimes I had the dinner with Toto and I stayed uh, one or two nights with Toto. Not we started, not in the we were not sharing the same room. <laughs> <laughs> Are you surprised at how successful he's become with that team with Mercedes? Um, surprised not at all because that is a very clever guy, very dedicated to performance, human performance, and I think it's the most important thing when you want to run a team. And he's very well organized also. That I think that he has the, the same approach into the business than into the sport. And uh, no, no, I'm not surprised at all. Looking at your own career, how much more complex is running a Formula One team than a junior team, a Formula Three team, a Formula Two team? It's not more complex at all. The only thing is that when you do F2, when you do Le Mans, you do DTM, you don't have the, the interview at 6.30. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. That, You're giving me daggers. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But I, I would say that on the on the racing side, it's exactly the same thing. You have okay to deal with less people and so, but it's exactly the same approach. You have to get the best from the engineer, the best from the car, the best from the drivers. You have to put everything and everybody together and so. And the combination in the approach is exactly the same. What is true is that in F1, you have probably more communication, politics, to deal with the form, with the FIA, with everybody. But is it more complicated to put together a winning package in Formula 1 than it is in Formula 2, Formula 3? No, but the inertia of the team is much bigger. It means that you can start from scratch. Uh, when we started in F2, for example, with Niklas, we started from scratch because it was the first time that we did a, a team at this level and we were champion 12 months after. You can't imagine something like this in F1, that because that the size of the team, the the part of the technology into the results, and so it's so big that the inertia is huge. The budget are also coming from the results. It means that it's very difficult to compensate and to improve year after year because that you need to get the budget and you got, you have the budget by the results. But doesn't matter. This is not the most important. The most important is that the global picture of a racing team. 
exactly the same story. The, you do Le Mans, you do DTM, you do F2, you do F1. The most important is that when you say in French that you have to do the mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> But so why, Fred, when you'd been so successful in the junior formulas, as you say, winning 12 months after setting up ART with Nicholas, why the need for Formula One for you personally? You're throwing yourself into this piranha pool, as Ron Dennis used to call it. Was this always an ambition for you to do Formula One? You weren't satisfied dominating the junior formulas? It was not at all. I remember that I started with Formula Renault. Uh, we did P2 the first season in the French Championship, and I think that my dream was to win the championship. And then we did F3, and I was very focused on the F3, and I was not looking after the, the step higher, that uh, perhaps it was a lack of ambition at this stage, I don't know. But it's also much more difficult when you are running your own company, because to do the step is not an easy one. It's, each time it's a huge investment, a, a huge risk also for the company when you are in a good shape in F3 to say, okay, let's do F2 or GP2 at this stage. In terms of investment, it's a huge step and uh, you are putting the, the system under pressure and at risk. And uh, you can't do the same step as the drivers. Okay, drivers, they will stay two years in Formula Renault, one year in F3, one year in F2. And uh, as a team or as a company, you can't do it. And that, uh, but no, it was not a lack of ambition because the ambition was to win. I won in F3, then I said, okay, that now uh, let's have a look on the, on the F2. And uh, the motivation was more based on results. And uh, I'm very, very, very happy and proud of what we did in the, in the junior series. I did it roughly with the same team because that uh, I remember perfectly that some of the mechanics were with me from the first day in Formula Renault. And this also was a part of the team spirit. And they were also there when we won the first title in, in F2. And it was... For me, it was a great achievement. Did you ever think about bringing your own team into Formula One? Yeah, we tried with Niklas in 2010, I think it was. But as I said before, that the, the, the step is huge for a company and because you have to move from uh, 50, 60 employees to more than uh, 200, that in terms of budget, you have to move from 20 millions to 120 and uh, to the business it's not so easy to do a 600% more of turnover in 12 months in any business huh? that it means that also that uh, I know that I worked quite hard the last 30 years of my life that I have to take it in consideration also that uh, and at one stage that uh, it was a bit difficult that we have to put together the engine supplier the chassis suppliers and so and we we decided with Niklas to stop And I think it was at this stage the best decision of my life because when you have a, a look on the, the other teams around us, it was probably Caterham, HRT, and it was Marussia also. But uh, What stopped you? Money and the lack of visibility also. To s I knew perfectly that we needed results and that the lack of visibility and the clear picture about the situation was... I don't want to say that it was impossible, but to start from scratch, you can see that it's very, very difficult, except us, but with another approach. If you have a look on the last 10 years, it was not uh, very successful. Did you get as far as thinking what the team would be called? Did you think about drivers, the engine supplier? Yeah, yeah. That, uh, at this stage, we were dealing with Toyota because Toyota was stopping the F1 for the chassis and with Renault for the engine. 
And, uh, so you would have been based in Cologne? No, no, we were supposed to be based in France. What was the name of the team? It would have been ART. It would have been State A, yeah. the team you had in yeah. GP2 at the time. Do you think that Formula One needs more teams? Yeah, but I, I had the discussion this morning with Chase about this. Is that um, the issue is that today the level of the F1 is so high. If you compare the team in GP2 today and 10 years ago, it's roughly the same. Okay, they improve, uh, they improve on the technical side, but the size of the company, the budget are roughly similar. In F1, we move from teams uh, like Marussia at 100 people to the, the smallest team today at, uh, let's say, uh, 500. In terms of budget, it did the same step. And now the step is too big between the, the, the junior series and the F1. And I think it's a shame because we could imagine to have something like a, a promotion of the, the best team in F2 to come with the drivers and to allow the drivers to run in F1. Almost have a relegation system yeah. like you do in football. Relegation is difficult for a company because that to, to move from uh, uh, 200 millions to 20 millions. It's, but it's the it's, same in football. Yeah, but the, the gap is different. Probably the gap is different. But yes, we could imagine something like this. That um, it is like it is. So it's going to be difficult to create that system. Is that what you can? Yeah, with, because with that's. Chase? I don't know on the the football. I'm not a big fan and I'm not a big specialist. But what is true is that the number of employees we have to build up the car, we have a huge inertia, and it's not because that you will crash on the last corner of the last race of the season and you will be last and you will have to go back in the junior series and then you will you will have uh, 500 employees on Sunday and we say okay sorry guys right now we have to run a GP2 car and we are we need only to have 25 guys make no sense and the approach is the wrong one but at least to imagine that the team could do the step how different is it for you being an employee whereas in the past you've always been the owner does it change in any way, how you approach the job? I don't think so, and perhaps that sometimes it was one of the issues. <laughs> no, that the approach for me is similar, that I'm fighting for the benefits of the company. It doesn't matter if the company is owned by myself or by someone else. For sure, I have to, to consider the position of the owners, and uh, I have a very strong relationship with the owner today, and... Uh, we are, after each session, we have discussion about the situation, about what we could improve. And uh, it's a part of the of my job, huh, that, uh, clearly. And it's true that uh, before I had the discussion with myself. <laughs> but, but sometimes it's good to be challenged also. <laughs> How many other commitments do you have outside of Formula One now? Uh, my biggest commitment is with my wife. Huh? <laughs> 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 yeah these 25 races a year that we're heading to Fred it's going to be difficult do you um, I mean for example I think spark racing technology I think is a, oh. is a fascinating thing that a lot of people may not know about yeah but I sold the company two years ago or three years ago uh, the majority of the of the stakes of the share sorry but um, yeah it was a good project I was probably one <laughs> I don't want to say nicest project of my life because that uh, F1 is a good one, F2 was a good one, F3 was a good one. But Frank, just one... to explain to people who don't know, the company, well, I know that you got the contract to build all the Formula E cars. Yeah, yeah we, we met with Alejandro Agag in 2000. 
uh, we were competitors in F2, but uh, we spoke about the project of the, the electric single seater and step by step that Alejandro wanted to launch a championship, but it was already into the pipe of the FIA and that honestly that Jean took the lead on this, that uh, pushed really hard. But it was not an easy project because you have to start from scratch with no regulation, no cars, no track, no teams. And the only one crazy enough to imagine that he will be able to achieve was Alejandro. And he said, okay, let's go for it. And uh, he came to me and said, Fred, that I had an experience on the electric single-seater before. And said, okay, le let's go for it. And uh, you will produce the car. So, okay, that, uh, but who will be the customers? Uh, we don't know yet, but uh, let's produce the cars. And it was a very, very ambitious project because we had to start from scratch with no tracks, with no format for the race, with no teams, with nothing. But the dynamic that Alejandro is able to put into a project like this was so huge that it was uh, one of the biggest success of my life. That um, as a project was fantastic. One of the areas that I think you are renowned is that you are brilliant at promoting young talent. I mean, just look at the people on the current Formula One grid who have been through your system in the junior formulas. The GP3 champion of 2015, Esteban Ocon. Roman Grosjean might be able to get into second place here. Alonso's there for the taking, gets a great toe behind the Ferrari, and he's up into second place. George Russell once again wins in Formula 2 in 2018. A superb victory for him. Charles Leclerc is the winner of the 2019 Italian Grand Prix. In fourth at the moment, can he improve it? In a Ricardo, he can! Holkenberg back in Formula One and P3 with the chequered flag out there. For the first time ever, Valtteri Bottas wins the Grand Prix! Du bist Weltmeister! Oh, thank you, boy! Sebastian Vettel, you are the world champion! The moment's arrived for Lewis Hamilton, who crosses the line to win a sixth title! What do you look for in a young driver? Can you predict when you see a 16-year-old drive how he will drive when he gets to Formula One? Is it as clear-cut for you as that? Honestly, not. Would, would be very easy to say yes, but honestly, not. Sometimes it's quite obvious, like Lewis. But you never know what could happen. That it's, it's not a guarantee because you are over-dominating the junior series that you will do it. On the subject of Lewis, yeah. you say... What was so outstanding about him back in, what, it was 2005, 6, wasn't it? Uh, was... Five. He, in F3. He, five in F3, but he was with Manor in 2004. We were champion with uh, Jimmy Green. And uh, we were also together on the, not, not in the same team, but he was doing Formula Renault with Manor and I was doing Formula Renault with Simon Pagenaud. And we were competitors. I remember perfectly that the first season that we did together was F3, was 2005. I think he won 18 races on 21. But the most important for me was that on the pit wall, I was more than relaxed. I always had the feeling that he will do the right move at the right moment. You know that the top drivers, they have all the same approach. When they are into the car, they are very self-confident. They know perfectly that they will be able to do the job. 
they know perfectly that if they don't take the risk to overtake at this corner, they will do they, they will do it next corner. And by the way, they don't crash. And Lewis was the perfect example. But when he was out of the car, he was so open to the discussions, able to say, okay, sorry guys, I had a very poor drive today. Forget the session, I did shit. Doesn't sound like that happened very often. Yeah, but <laughs> you know, it's it's even more impressive when the guy is dominating the series or today is world champion. And when the guy is able to say, sorry guys, I had a poor drive today. And at the end, it's more often the guy like this, world champion, able to do something like this when the, the guy at the back of the grid will never say, I had a poor drive. That's a <laughs> and uh, th this this feeling is helping also to have a, a very mutual, very high mutual trust into the team. So okay, that when the guy is pushing in one direction, you are convinced that it's not for a wrong approach, let's say. Was it difficult to persuade him to do Formula 3 with you? Because he's been quite open at saying he didn't want to do a second season of Formula 3. He wanted to go straight into GP2. I don't want to disclose something and he has to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Who was making Ma the Martin, calls? Martin, Martin called me. Yeah. Martin well, I was in yeah. Le Mans with the Formula Renault and he called me and said, ah, hello, it's Martin Wismarsh. I said, sorry, yeah, it's Martin Wismarsh. I want to discuss with you. Please, could you come to working tomorrow? <laughs> I said, yeah, I have nothing else to do for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, And it's okay that uh, we had a discussion with Lewis and he would like to drive with you next year was September. And then uh, I know perfectly that uh, Lewis had some other project at one stage and it was a tough relationship with uh, McLaren at this stage on some topics. And uh, um, But I think it was part of the process also for Lewis to have this kind of confrontation with, the, with McLaren. I think it was the right approach for him to take decision to manage this kind of situation and it was a good way to be much more mature quite early that um do you have a favorite lewis anecdote off track on track is there something he did i have to find a positive one <laughs> <laughs> well i can think of a, a, a po i can think of a positive i have still one. in my office the picture of lewis in budapest when he had the toughest weekend of his life he spawned in the free practice in the first lap he spawned in the outlap of the quali and he's on the grass sitting on the grass close to the car and then he had a very strong recovery for the for the rest of the weekend and he showed also this day that even with a tough start that he can uh, have a good recovery and for me it was a very strong performance from lewis and the other one is uh, barcelona i remember perfectly this one and this one After the race, I said, bah, Lewis is the, the top of the top. That um, I remember that he had a very poor start. We had to pit very early. And he, he did 26 quali lap in a row, or 20, I don't know. And he was leading the race. And uh, But as we had to pit very early, he was running out of tires. And his teammate was Alex Prema. Caught him seconds after seconds. And uh, I felt the mistake coming you know that's okay the prema was <laughs> catching lewis like a, like a rocket and uh, in the last corner in turn 10 in um, in barcelona that uh, i'm still fighting with alex about <laughs> the story but <laughs> from my point of view he was a bit optimistic starting from uh, uh, far away and he crashed with lewis 
but we did want to uh, that uh, Lewis crossed the line he won the race he crossed the line with the radiators on the on track and uh, <laughs> Alex we did P2 without the front wing I said okay now I have to calm down the guys and um, I went to the track to discuss with Lewis and he came to me and said Fred it's my mistake and I was very surprised because from an external point of view it was I will have some trouble with uh, Alex Fazer, but it was more Alex than something else. <laughs> Even 25 years after, we are still not okay. <laughs> but, and he said, yes, because if I didn't miss the start, I would have win with 25 seconds. And even in this kind of situation, he's able to have a look on what he did wrong. For me, this is the, the from far the best approach. And he's always trying to improve himself and to do a better job. And uh, even in this kind of situation, he's okay. I made the first mistake. I, I had a poor start. Without the poor start from the pole position, say goodbye that uh, I could win the race with 25 seconds. It was true. Given all that, were you surprised that he was so competitive in 2007 when he stepped up to Formula One and was Fernando Alonso's equal, really, from race one? You can't predict before. I think nobody expected at this stage that he will match uh, Fernando, except himself. But it was quite soon into the season he was there huh, that he was able to match Fernando and uh, that it was quite obvious that uh, he will do the job and that uh, early into the season that um, I remember the first test day in, uh, in Silverstone that he was already has the same approach. He was very demanding for the data and uh, try to improve his own performance. And uh, it's not really the culture in F1. In F1, the drivers, sometimes they are convinced that they don't have to improve so much. How is your relationship with Lewis now? are a bit more distant because that you are complaining that uh, I went to Toto's house tonight that I imagined if I'm sharing dinner with uh, Lewis that <laughs> <laughs> because uh, the reason I say that Fred is I think he's so successful and so famous now that I, I would imagine he has lots of people wanting to be his friend and does he actually gravitate back towards people like yourself who so instrumental in getting I'm not him. I'm not asking for something first and that uh, you know because that um, I don't know if I helped Lewis or another one to join F1 but what is true and sure is that these kind of drivers help my company to develop one of the biggest assets of the company over the last 25 years it was Lewis, it was Nico Rosberg, it was uh, Seb Vettel, it was Bottas, it was uh, Nico Hülkenberg, and I am for sure that I will forget some guys, but it doesn't matter. But all the drivers I had helped my company to grow up. And it's not only on the other way that the company helped them to join F1. And, um, Who else was on Lewis's level in F3 GP2? In F3, I would say nobody. I didn't work with Charles in F3. In F2, if you consider F3 and GP3 or the new F3, that uh, perhaps that Charles was also very impressive in F3. In F2, but it's very difficult to compare one year to the other one because that, uh, the level of the, the season in the junior series are not always similar. Fred, just while we're talking about Charles Leclerc, how had he developed between F3 and when you were working with him in Formula One in his debut season. Is it still the same guy? No, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the story with Charles is a bit different because he was 
in go-kart with Birel Art in 2013 or 12. I was not involved on, on, on the go-kart team on the day per day, but I had a, an eye on it. And uh, he's the only one that I followed from the go-kart to the F1. And for sure, the relationship was a bit different. Also the fact that he ran with me in the junior series. And then after in F1, the, the collaboration is a bit different. Does he have that same self-critical nature as Lewis? Yeah, and, and, and on this case, it was far too much. Too much? Yeah. Actually, we see that now. Because, don't because we? when he makes a mistake, he yeah, goes on to social Lewis media. Lewis was always able to blame himself with us into the team. I would say not too much outside, but it was the right approach. With Charles, very often I have to ask him to calm down on this, that to, to avoid to say in the radio, I'm stupido, or I don't know, I don't remember exactly what he said in uh, Baku, or, or I remember that in China when he sponsored, stupid, and uh, I did shit, and blah, blah, and say, okay, that you can share this kind of feeling with the teams, but stay calm outside because with the social media and so that you're never sure about the next step and it's not under control and so, but doesn't matter at this point. I think the approach is quite similar to be able to say, okay, I did a mistake because they are so self-confident and confident in their own potential that they are okay to say, okay, today I did a mistake. Doesn't matter, I'm still on the top. But I did a mistake today. Do you think he's ready to lead Ferrari in what will be... He's still it's very quite, early days, isn't it? He's doing, no? Well, no, not doing now. Well, that's point. <laughs> he's <is>. doing it. <laughs> Sebastian, if you're listening. Yeah. But you think he's, he's ready? He's almost born ready. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, because well, for sure that the experience will come with the years and it will be better in terms of uh, how to sort out an issue and so that he will have more and more experience. And uh, But the approach and the mentality is there and you don't need to be in F1 to be a leader. And that uh, you spoke about Sebastian, but I remember perfectly Sebastian in F3. He, was, uh, he had a very, very strong leadership into the team. He learned to speak French before to join the team, to have a close relationship with the mechanics, to bring the team in his, in his own direction, that he was 18 or 17, I don't remember, but he was a very, very professional guy. Why didn't he win the title that year? Uh, this year it was uh, Paul Di Resta who won the championship, it was 2006, and he was P2 or P3, I don't remember who was there also, it was Van der Gaard and uh, Kobayashi perhaps. Well, I did, I think, P2. And uh, the main reason is that uh, he was under contract with Red Bull, and it's not the reason that he didn't win. But the fact is that he did some races in the World Series Renault because they had the opportunity to do it. And then uh, he had a crash in Spa. I think he had, a, he was not, he, perhaps that he missed a race with us or something like this. And then he did some tests in F1, and then he did some tests in I don't know what. And he was switching every single weekend from car to car. And uh, in front of him, he had Paul. Paul was 500% uh, focused on the on the F3, only the M3. And he, the, the step was too big between F1 and F3 to switch from one car to the other one. Did you try and dissuade him from doing all these different things? Focus uh, on F3, uh, deal with one thing at a time? Yeah, it was my approach also because that it was uh, good for the team and so, but it was not with Seb, it was with Helmut. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you've had lots of those conversations. Right? 
It's interesting you say Seb learning French. Um, he seems so thorough in everything that he does. He It's almost like he doesn't dare rely on his natural talent. He has to tick every other box just to be sure. Yeah, I didn't work with Seb after the F3, and I think the F3 was not the easiest season for Seb due to the fact that he has to do a 22 championship at the same time. But uh, it's a bit strange because at the end of the season, I remember, I don't remember if it was P2 or P3, but I think P2. And uh, I was convinced that he will do it, that he will achieve, that he will do F1, and he will do well because one of the... You know, the big difference between F3 and uh, F1 is that uh, it's not just in F1, it's not just a matter of uh, speed on track. You have to be the catalyzer of the of the team. You have to bring everybody with you. You have to motivate 500 people. You are 1,000 in the big teams or 2,000 in uh, some teams. <laughs> uh, and, and this part of the job is getting more and more important. And I was really convinced in F3 that Seb that... Uh, it was difficult to judge the, the pace of Seb in F3 because that he was doing so many things at the same time. But at least on the other side, he was the top of the top. Here's another great driver who's been through what I call the Vasseur system, Nico Hülkenberg. Have you been surprised at how quickly he's got back up to speed in the racing point? You know, while Absolutely we were Absolutely not. Fred, while we, while we were all in Barcelona testing... Nico was at the Rio Festival having fun and then suddenly here we are a few months on and he's starting P3 on the grid at Silverstone. Yeah, no, no, that um, we did two or three seasons with Nico. The first part of the first season was a real disaster. He was P19 into championship at mid-season and I remember perfectly that I had a meeting with Willy Weber and Nico to say, okay, now what, what could be the next step? Do we have to stop today or not? <laughs> And Nico said, guys, no way. I did some mistakes, but I will show you from today that you bet on me and uh, you were right. And he scored more points than, I think it was Romain was champion. He scored more points than Romain in the second part of the season. And the year after, he did a fantastic job in F3. It was not an easy win. I think it was against Buemi. But he had so many issues at the beginning that he blew up the engine in race one in Okenheim and... Uh, uh, by the way, he had to start from the back race too. And then he had another issue in the second event. And then he was disqualified in the Zandvoort because the extinguisher blew up into the car and so and so and so. But he was so strong on his approach that at the end he won. And the GP2 was exactly the same story that uh, we had the first part of the season was quite difficult. Romain was winning every single event in, in F2. And I remember perfectly that I was in Monaco, that Romain won race one. And we were walking to the paddock with Nico, and I was a bit desperate. I said, okay, that it will be difficult now. There, Romain is leading the championship with uh, Miles. And Nico said, no, that it will turn in our direction as soon as that we will do the, the, we'll have the first win. And he was so convinced that said, okay, perhaps he's right. And then we had uh, Nürburgring. He, he won the two races in Nürburgring. We had uh, Budapest and he won again and he won again and he won again. And at one stage that he was leading the championship and he came back to me and said, Fred, remember Monaco? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So with all that, you're not surprised? No, I was very pushy to get Nico on board in uh, at Renault, but I left before he joined. <laughs> 
Okay, that's really interesting. So you were the catalyst for that? Yeah, yeah, because I, I was, and I'm still convinced, and that the perception of the paddock of Nico, from my point of view, is wrong, and I think he's one of the most talented, talented guys on the ground. The what grid. do you think the perception of the paddock is? It's not so high, but I think they are wrong. Why do you think he has yet? I really because, hope because I know him very well. That we are, he raced for me two or three seasons in a row. When you are winning, it's always easy. You know what I mean. That uh, when you have the season that you start with pole wins, blah 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 blah, you are champion. Quite easy. Okay, you did the job. But when you start a season at the back with issues. And you are able to step by step to recover, to keep the team motivated, to keep the guys pushing in the same direction, and sometimes to even be stronger than your boss when he's a bit desperate. I think that these guys is a real leader, and that uh, and Nico did the job. Really interesting about Renault. So I'm going to ask you the same question about Nico. Could you ever see him here at Alfa Romeo? Do you think he'd fit well with the team? Uh, what you, you could do a copy-paste of the, the previous question is that, uh, for the reply, is that, uh, honestly, that it's a bit too early for us. But Fred, you have to be planning. Surely you're thinking about your driver lineup. I get that you need to get yeah, everything but, else. Yeah, uh, but I need also to discuss the point with my shareholders and so, and uh, to know what Skimmy wants to do. And I don't want to disturb the team so far. Then now, because it would be the worst case scenario to try to to have this kind of discussion today. That uh, we have to recover also because I want to be attractive for the drivers. And I'm not sure that we can convince someone to join when we are struggling. It means that we first need to recover and then we are, will convince the drivers to join. Couple more, if I may. Bottas, Valtteri Bottas. Do you think he's underrated? I would love to be underwriting at Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is he, he's, he's got quite a good team. I think that tons of drivers would love to be underrated at Mercedes. <laughs> when you are in front of Lewis, it's not easy to find space and so on. But in the other end, after five races, I think he did two pole positions. Last year, I did five props. He's strong, mentally. Yeah, because the position of Lewis' teammates, it's probably the most difficult of the world. You have the top of the top in the, in the same car as you. You, are, you have the best reference. And that all the other drivers of the field can say that the Mercedes is the super fast car. And so, Bottas can't argue like this, that he has Lewis in the same car as him. And he's doing the job. He's doing a fantastic job for me. And also that he's a very, very good team player. That uh, over the last three or four seasons, he was always there, consistent, scoring points, challenging Lewis. And it's very important for Mercedes and for Lewis to have someone able to challenge him. And uh, that he did a perfect job for me. Now he wants to get more. I think that the results that he did today, I think in Silverstone, in Silverstone is uh, the most important one for Lewis. And you know that he will... Uh, put everything together in Silverstone for sure. And uh, that I think it's very important for Valtteri to do the pole position in, uh, in Silverstone. Yeah, it upset Lewis. Upset, I don't know. He will, uh, no, over, you're just talking to him. He's, he just, you can see he really, really doesn't like it. Yeah, but it's part of his own motivation also and to, to, be, uh, to have this kind of approach. And uh, even after, uh, I don't know how many pole positions in his life, the last one is always the most important. <laughs> and uh, But... One other guy on the current grid who's very highly rated, but we're not really able to see yet 
just how good he is in Formula One because he doesn't have the car. George Russell, he won titles for ART and the junior formulas. Would you put him up there with the with the top guys that have been through the Vassar system? But he won F3 and F2 in a row as a rookie. And if you have a look, as a rookie for the F3 was not completely true because I think it was the first year of the F3. And, uh, but I would say that Lewis did it, that Nico did it, Hülkenberg uh, and Nico Rosberg did it also. Charles did it. Only this group of five did it. <laughs> and that says everything uh, in terms for, of how good George was. For Russell. me, yes. And the approach of George is a very, very pushy guy, very demanding for the team, sometimes too much. And I had tough discussion with George about this, but he's also very demanding for himself. And at the end, it's the only way to, to survive and to improve. And uh, he has the good approach. He did a fantastic season in F2 when he was winning as a rookie. Let's see. Now, now it's not because you are winning F2 that you will be world champion in F1. Huh? But um, so far, the, the even what is easy doing in uh, in F1 last year was very difficult because that uh, William struggled a lot. He had the same commitment and so over the season. But this season is mega. I rate him very high. I don't want to make comparison because you can't from one year to the other one. And you have also to understand that and to consider that it's not only the picture of one stage of their career. It's how they will improve, how they will manage the, the situation when it will become a bit more difficult with more pressure and so. And uh, sometimes you can't be fully convinced, but the feeling could be there. And uh, the feeling with George also is there. Your old flatmate, Toto Wolf, do you think he rates him as highly as you do? Ask him that. Uh, but I think that uh, the commitment from Mercedes on George is huge. They invested a lot. They spend a lot of time, energy, money. It's not for nothing. I just want to talk about French motorsport at the minute in that, you know, we've got a lot of French drivers in Formula One at the minute. It seems that the staircase in France now is solid and you're getting the drivers coming through, making it all the way. It's almost like the Winfield elf days of 30 But years ago. It's Would you true. agree with that? Yeah, sure. That I think that uh, you have the period of elf and the Winfield and they were doing the promotion of the drivers with uh, through the, the Winfield team and it was very strong. And uh, at one stage that we had, uh, I think something like six or seven drivers in F1, beginning of uh, 80s. And then it was a bit more difficult. It was difficult on the economical side in France that uh, with the Loire in French when the, the tobacco was banned. And it was a bit more difficult for the, the motorsport in France. But um, the FFSC and the Federation put in place the Equipe de France. They start end of 1998 with uh, Soyayari. It was the beginning of the story and uh, it took time to build up something strong. But at the end, that they, they help uh, Pierre Gasly, they help uh, Esteban, they help uh, uh, Romain at some stage probably also. That then all the drivers on the field and today the new generation of uh, French drivers, that uh, they, are, they were all helped by the, the Federation. I don't know if it's unique, probably yes. But it, it was at least the first one. And thanks to Nicolas Deschaux, to Jacques Regis before, to have done... I think they started with the rally first. 
and they did the same exercise on the single seater and they did very well. Were your ambitions ever as a driver? 20 year old Fred, did you want to be a racing well, driver? 20 years old, I was at uh, in the high school and it was far too late, you know that. Uh, <laughs> okay, F 15 year old Fred, I don't know what. No, I did go kart when I was uh, 10 or yeah from 10 to 18 don't be modest were, were you quick uh, quick it depends compared to who <laughs> <laughs> who were you racing at the time uh, we, we had a very strong generation in the, in france and i was racing in france and then uh, close to paris but we had in the same group of cadets that i had uh, laurent aiello emmanuel collard frank lagorce and uh, bouillon jules Yeah. And that uh, I think at least of all group of 10 or 15 drivers that four or five did F1. I was the only one to do F1 as a team principal, <laughs> but <laughs> probably that. Uh, no, and my mother decided that I have to stop <laughs> at one stage where I had a huge crash and said, okay, now full stop that uh, go back at school and it's much better. So, and today I think it was the, the right decision. And what about your ambitions going forward your team principal of alfa romeo now do you have ambitions outside of that in a a wider role in motorsport or is, is this the only focus for you wider role in motorsport what do you mean that um the fia is looking for a new president Waff! <laughs> I, <laughs> i'm not saying now Fred. I'm, not saying, i'm not saying next year <laughs> Not next year when Jean Todd finishes, but it's just you have so much experience of motorsport outside of Formula One. Would you look to use that in any other capacity down the road? When I was doing Formula One, I was not thinking about F3, F2, and so sometimes it's probably a, an advantage or an asset to be focused on what you are doing, not to dream about what could be the next step and what could be the next step and to lose the, the focus on what you are doing. Perhaps you didn't trust me when I told you before that I don't want to discuss about drivers for next year because that we are in a more than tough situation and I want to be 200% focused on this. I don't want to put the door in the head of my guys and I want to, to push with them and to try to build up something and to recover. But I think it would be a, a mistake from my side to think about what could be the next step and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. I have a project. The project is clear. I need to deliver. I need to do the job. We are not doing it today, honestly. And that, by the way, that I, I need to be 200% focused on this. Then I don't know what will happen and uh, what I will do into the future. And that uh, I remember that I started the motor racing like uh, as a mechanic in uh, super production in France I was 13 or 14 and if you told me at this stage that I will be in F1 it was I say okay it's a joke but and now be focused on what you are doing and I, I am I'm trying to put the same approach in the mind of everybody into the team that we don't have to think about uh, what we could do in 25 years that uh, we have enough to do uh, today and the next six months and the year after when you have the project of the new car and so and be focused on what you are doing is this is the most important seems very logical do you have any time Thank for <laughs> <laughs> do you have any time for hobbies 
away from motor racing. If I tell you fitness, you won't trust well, me. Okay. <laughs> Keep working. <laughs> Go back to <laughs> Mark Arnold. Where are you? No, that's Kimmy's train. No, <laughs> no, bye. I have um, the other part of my life, and the main important, most important for sure, is my family because I know. I am with my wife since uh, roughly 30 years. And uh, I have four Can children. Can I ask you an embarrassing question? Do you know your wedding anniversary, Fred? Because that's an uh, important moment. 31st of July, 99. Okay. <laughs> my assistant put it on my diary. <laughs> Thanks to Anita. Okay, so. <laughs> so 21 years married. Four children, and uh, by the way, that uh, when I'm not doing motorsport, uh, I want and I need to spend some time with my family. It's a good balance for me, and I need to have this to perform in my business, that uh, I need to have something else alongside and, uh, and to have fresh air with my family. This is the most important for me today. Fred, thank you so much for such a, You're welcome. a wonderful chat. I've really enjoyed it. Last thing. We share a birthday. I only discovered that the other day. 68 or no, 28? No, no, 20 <laughs> <laughs> birthday. <laughs> Not birth year. <laughs> 28th of May. So I was going to say it normally falls around Monaco Grand Prix time, yep. doesn't it? Can we have a drink? Can we make it a thing every uh, sure, year? Sure, sure. Birthday drink, 28th of May sure. in Monaco. I'm always available. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's not your birthday. <laughs> Fred, thank you very much. That's great. Okay, thank you. I'm going to hold Fred to that drink next year, or indeed, the next race. What an interesting and open chat. The hard exterior is evident when he's talking about Alfa Romeo, such is Fred's desire to get that team back towards the front of the grid. But he softens when talking about drivers, and I loved his anecdotes about Hamilton, Vettel and Hulkenberg. Many thanks for your time, Fred. It was great to catch up. And thanks too to the guys at Alfa Romeo. That's almost it for this week. But before I go, let's rummage through the virtual mailbag to see what you're saying about the show. You loved hearing from Eddie Cheever last week. Eddie's is one hell of a tale. There's no doubt about that. D. Waldo Gerard said this. I've lived my whole life in Indy and even interviewed Eddie at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway once. But I learned a lot about him from the podcast. A remarkable man and driver, a great ambassador for motorsport. Thank you, Tom, for helping us to get to know Eddie better. Well, thanks for that note. I really appreciate it. I love getting to know Eddie better myself, so I'm glad you did too. Let's go to Mark Becker next, who said this. Freaking phenomenal. It was amazing to hear totally new stories from the guy who was my racing hero growing up. I knew Eddie from his IndyCar days and I had no idea he had such a storied Formula One career. Awesome stuff. Well, thanks, Mark. Eddie strikes me as someone who's only focused on the future, so it doesn't surprise me that he didn't discuss his Formula One career when he was racing in IndyCar. The next race was the only one that mattered. And how about this from Patrick? Really enjoyed your chat with Eddie Cheever. Being an American, it makes me proud that we had such a great driver like Eddie in Formula One. Hopefully this chat will inspire someone here in the States to realize that F1 is reachable and can be done. Hope you're right, Patrick. 
A top-line American driver is what we need. Perhaps it's Logan Sargent who won the first Formula 3 race at Silverstone just last weekend. Well, that's it for this week. Please keep your messages coming because I read each and every one of them. And as ever, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>